Welcome back, history fans. We have part two of World War Two, part two, 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 two. I I don't know. I just like saying the two in there. Um, anyhow, we're going to be talking more about World War Two. And if you're going in order of how the podcasts are, we just got done talking about the Pacific Theater and fighting against the Japanese. And we left off with the dropping of the atomic bombs. And as promised, this podcast is going to be covering um, some of the social effects of what was going on in the United States during the Pacific Theater and so forth. Um, This one is a little bit shorter than the last podcast. I know, you're so disappointed. You wanted more. Um, But anyhow, I will give you more, just not as more as part one of part two. Get it? I get to say part two again. Anyhow, so... Um, Let's talk about some of the social effects of things and discrimination and segregation that's going on in the United States uh, during this time as well. So many jobs and places um, in the United States during the 1940s were still practicing discrimination and segregation. So um, during the time, FDR, um, June um, 24, 1941, uh, signed Executive Order 8802, and this opened up jobs and job training programs in defense plants Um, so at least government jobs, to all Americans. And this was without any kind of discrimination because of race, creed, color, or national origin. So, yay, America. Um, Now, that being said, we still have some issues. Um, So uh, the treatment of African Americans, not the best. Um, So during the war, when everything broke out, um, there wasn't exactly a lot of room for African Americans to kind of fight the war. And now, they did participate, and they were, giving, were given some kind of equal treatment, and then as soon as they came back from World War II, which we'll talk about more when we get into our late 40s, early 50s unit, you know, it was okay for them to fight the war, but as soon as they came home from fighting discrimination in the war, they get to meet with more discrimination back home in the United States. So um, one of the big experiments, I guess, it's called the Tuskegee Experiment, was to see if African Americans could learn how to fly planes in Tuskegee, Alabama. Now, just the notion of that sounds pretty darn racist. Um, but anyhow, this so-called Tuskegee experiment uh, basically was the training of an entire African American combat uh, group uh, for fighter planes. And once they did finally see action, uh, they were one of the most prestigious flying groups of the entire war. So, um, anyhow, kind of interesting one to add on there. Um, so... Now, another group that was discriminated in the United States was uh, Mexican-Americans, and many of them had come to the United States and found jobs working in California in the shipyards, around 17,000 of them. And this was also part of the Bracero program, and I'm sure my pronunciation was not the best on that, Uh, but it helped to give a lot of jobs for Mexican-Americans. And when they were here, they kind of lived in um, separate communities almost called Braceros, um, which... um, I'm sorry, Barrios was the separate ones with these Spanish-speaking neighborhoods. Um, but anyhow, this Bracero program, Bracero means Mexican farm laborer who came to the United States for work. And between 42 and 47, around 200,000 came to work in the United States living in those Barrios that I, I mentioned just a moment ago. Well, not everyone was exactly happy with this influx of Mexicans, um, Mexican-Americans coming in. And um, there was some discrimination, which the biggest one that kind of came about was the Zoot Suit Riots. And in the 40s, young Mexican-Americans in Los Angeles began wearing these Zoot Suits, which um, 
their like long draped jackets, baggy pants, tight cuffs, and often wore their hair slicked back in a ducktail haircut. Um, so many of the American sailors didn't like these zoot suitors. They felt that they were stealing their American women. So in June of 1943, these GIs, or government issues, um, they weren't happy, uh, so they started beating up the zoot suitors. And uh, there was a big brawl, and the zoot suitors got all in trouble and got sent to jail, but the GIs didn't. So a little bit of discrimination there. So, um, and another case of discrimination, I know it seems like I'm mentioning a lot here because, well, there was a lot of discrimination in the United States, at least compared to how we are today, but I guess that's kind of an interpretation. 1941, after Pearl Harbor, um, time period. So, anyhow, 1941, there was 127,000 Japanese Americans living in the United States. Now, granted, this only made up 0.1% of the entire population in the United States. And most of these Japanese Americans lived on the West Coast. And already there was tension with uh, these Japanese Americans because, you know, everyone after Pearl Harbor kind of blamed the Japanese. And even though these are Japanese Americans, just because of the way people look, they sometimes were discriminated against. And on top of that, you know, headlines in the newspapers would read, Japanese boat flashes message ashore, to, and Japanese here in the United States sent vital data back to Tokyo. So everyone's kind of worried about these Japanese that are living here in the United States. So because of these fears, America, the government, reacted to remove all of these quote-unquote aliens from the West Coast. So February 19th, 1942, so not that long after Pearl Harbor, FDR signed Executive Order 9066, which established certain areas of the United States where aliens couldn't live. It was not Roswell, New Mexico. Sorry, just putting in my own little conspiracy there. Anyhow, um, and these aliens were going to be relocated by the WRA, or War Relocation Authority. And they moved around 110,000 uh, um, people of Japanese ancestry. And they were moved or interned um, in camps that they were confined in, in remote areas far away from the coast. And this was actually taken to court um, over its legality, and that was, oh, I apologize for my terrible pronunciation here, Korematsu versus the United States. And the court, which is the United States, ruled that the United States had done nothing wrong. Now, fast forward to today, and we go, yeah, you did something wrong. So, anyhow... We'll get to that in a little bit here. Most of them were located to the middle of nowhere, um, mostly this, the Great Plains region. And families lived in these, were forced to live in these like wooden barracks. Uh, it was basically just a shack covered in tar paper. They had cots and blankets to sleep on and just a single light bulb or two um, as light source. Uh, sharing toilets, dining facilities, and bathing facilities. And the whole thing was surrounded by barbed wire and guards. It was not a very nice thing to be exposed to. And, um, um, you know, modern day, fast forward, uh, we have uh, been giving reparations to the families uh, of those that were affected by these uh, internment camps. Um, so now, even with this terrible treatment, we still saw uh, Japanese Americans fighting for America, which really is their country. And that was about 17,000 of them. Um, and most of these were called 
Nisei, N-I-S-E-I, which it basically means a Japanese person that is born in the United States. So they are second generation. First, first generation means they came off of the boat and they're here in America. And of these that fought, um, most of them fought in the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, and they won more medals of bravery than any other unit in U.S. history, which is pretty impressive. And one last group that we're going to talk about being discriminated against, women. So prior to the war, uh, women had jobs as clerks, secretaries, or some kind of domestic workers, and they were all mostly very low pay. Well, now that the war is going on, we needed them to join the manufacturing businesses, um, aircraft, shipyards, munitions, all those kind of things. In 41, 1941, that is, there was 14.6 million women working. By 1944, it was 19.4 million women. Uh, at one point, they made up 35% of the entire civilian labor force. And you know, the one that always kind of stands out is Rosie the Riveter. Um, and she actually, uh, like, the whole notion of Rosie the Riveter came from a 1942 song um, about, you know, just women working and, you know, kind of patriotism and so forth. And she basically kind of symbolized the entire war contributions that women made during World War II. So um, when the war ended, um, you know, most of the women were, you know, oh, thank you for your service, but your job is no longer needed. You need to go home. We need these jobs for men now. And some women did fight to keep these jobs, and that kind of leads us into the 50s when we start talking about women's uh, liberation movement and more rights for women and so forth. So we'll be kind of getting back to that in a later podcast. So anyhow, I hope you were able to find some of that information helpful and useful and interesting all at the same time. So we're going to stop that podcast now, and we'll be uh, coming back with another one shortly. So hope you enjoyed.